0: Well, I worked for several years as a counselor, and obviously to, to be a mental health counselor, um, you, have to, you have to go to school, you have to get training for that. I had multiple um, internships that I participated in. My first internship was at a uh, college campus. I worked um, in, the, uh, in the, the little counseling department um, for college students, so college students could come uh, and get free counseling with us. Right, they're paying tens of thousands of dollars for school, but they could get free counseling at least. Um, so they would come to us, and uh, and we would help them work through whatever was going on in, in, in their lives. Um, and this is this is my first uh, this is my first site uh, doing counseling. I'd I'd counseled. Um, I practiced counseling with my peers before at school, right? Um, There were even a couple projects I think we had to talk a friend into, like, letting us do, like, a mini-counseling session with them. Um, But up to this point, I'd never really really counseled someone with the newer training that I had. Um, And we were a couple weeks into the semester, and the the two other interns that were there, they'd already had at least a couple clients. And I just hadn't yet. It hadn't worked out. I was only there a few days a week. Um, Clients would request, male or female. I was the only guy there. Um, It just hadn't worked out yet. And then one day, my supervisor came in, knocked on my door. So I was working on something. He said, Greg, you have your first client today. And I'm so excited. I'm just, I'm elated that finally, like, I've spent all this money on school, and I've practiced this stuff. Like, now I can I can work with a young college student that just needs a little guidance, probably, right? So so he sits down in my office, and um, and I realize, like, I haven't seen him do this with the other counselors when they got their first client, so I'm, I'm, my radar is up. And he said, I've got to tell you about this client, and he goes in to tell me about this client, and um, really the... Just the trauma in their life. They they'd come from a war torn country. They'd survived two civil wars as a child. They lost almost all of their relatives. There's a uh, like a two week period where this guy survived on mayonnaise and water. Like that, that's all he had for a couple weeks. He as like a ten year old. He was walking around with an M16 to protect himself. Um, so, my supervisor's telling me these things, and, and I'm sure I look like a deer caught in the headlights. I, I, this is way over my head, and, and he knew that. He was, he was getting me ready for what was not the typical first ever counseling client. He was preparing me. Um, that's, that's why he was giving me this background. He looked at me and said, Greg, don't worry about all the things you've learned the last couple of years. I just want you to be present. Just be present with this young man and, and listen to him. And, and it was exactly what I needed. If he didn't tell me that, I would have tried to probably do so many stupid interventions and different things. And it, it would have been a, a train wreck. But, but he knew what I needed. Jesus knows what his disciples need here. Right? We're in the last few chapters before, before Jesus will be crucified. And, and this all focuses in on, on the disciples and what they need, and he's preparing them. So let's read in, uh, in John chapter 13. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there with me. John chapter 13, verses 21 through 38. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified. Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, Jesus said to him, what you are going to do, do quickly. Now no one at the table knew why Jesus said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what you need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. When he had gone out, Jesus said, now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you, you will seek me. And just as I said to the Jews, so now also I say to you, where I am going you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this all people will know that you are my disciples. If you have love for one another. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. So our, our truth statement t- for Today, or the main point is this: even though his disciples will be unfaithful, Jesus remains faithful to them and to the Father and commands them to love as He has loved. So his, his disciples will not be faithful, not, not even just Judas, but the disciples will scatter. Peter, as we find out in this passage, will deny Jesus multiple times, and yet Jesus remains faithful to his disciples. Jesus remains faithful to us. And he he commands them how they're to live, how they're to love as, as he is loved. Let's jump back into verse 21. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. So Jesus is troubled. And I think it's easy for us, especially if we've been following Jesus for a while. We know Jesus is fully God. We know Jesus is fully man. And yet we read about hard emotions like this, powerful emotions, and it's easy for us to just think about Jesus as God and think, ah, this, it wasn't that hard for him. Right? It wasn't that bad. But the word that John chooses here is, is really powerful. It, it can mean revulsion, horror, anxiety, agitation. This is a really, really strong emotion that Jesus felt. Interestingly, in uh, chapter 14, verse 1, Jesus will say to his disciples, let not your hearts be troubled. He immediately follows that with believe in God, believe also in me. So here, Jesus is troubled, and and then the disciples will be troubled, and, and yet one, we know is good, right? Whatever Jesus feels is perfect, it's righteous, he feels it correctly, and and the disciples, he says, no, don't be troubled, and and he connects it to believing, right? That that what they were troubled by was caused by, or at least solved by, uh, it'd be solved by them believing. Certainly, Jesus wasn't troubled because he didn't believe. It wasn't because he didn't trust the Father. So, what was he troubled about? The the cross is coming, we know that, but John doesn't connect it to the cross. John connects this emotion to being troubled over Judas, the, the condition of Judas's heart. He loved Judas. He spent the last three years with Judas. He, he taught Judas. Judas had, had seen Jesus perform miracles. Right? Jesus, as we know through this gospel, he can see right into the hearts of people. And, and Now, at this point, Judas is faking it. But I wonder if there were times when he was vulnerable with Jesus, when, when there was this genuine connection, but now Judas' heart is, is very far from Jesus. He's going to betray Jesus, and Jesus is troubled. Now, Jesus feels exactly what he should feel. He's sad. He's distraught. He feels anxiety over the condition of Judas' heart, that, that Judas would love money more than he would love God that Jesus would choose anything over God. Being troubled should not be a foreign feeling to Christians. Our our heart, our soul should be troubled as we walk around this planet knowing Jesus and at the same time knowing that there are others that have not trusted Jesus, that there are people that will die in their sin, that are dead in their sin, and they'll be punished without Jesus. This should trouble us. I'm not saying that we should constantly be troubled by this, but we should have times where we lose sleep at night. When, when students, you're at school and you can't concentrate because the kid next to you doesn't know Jesus, or, or you're at work and your friend in the cubicle next door doesn't know Jesus, and, and so you can't concentrate on that meeting that you've got to prepare for. Instead, you're praying. You're asking God to help you get into a life-altering conversation about Him. Because that coworker, that, that peer in school needs Jesus. If this experience is rare for the Christian, then something's wrong. Right? We should be familiar with being troubled over the lost. A troubled heart motivates us. That's what pain does. Right? If I go to my stove and I touch the burner when it's hot, it, it burns me and my brain takes note of that. I feel that pain and my brain's going to remind me, don't do that again. That thing can burn you. When we're troubled, that's the Holy Spirit in us, motivating us, reminding us that there are still more people that need Jesus, urging us to get in gospel conversations so that people can come to know who Jesus is. So if Jesus is troubled over our heart that's rebellious towards him, we should be troubled. Jesus tells them that there's a betrayer among them and the disciples, they don't understand. They look at one another and they don't have a clue. The threat of betrayal is, is confusing to them. They, they've been confused that Jesus could die, that Jesus could suffer. That doesn't make sense with what they know of Messiah. And similarly here, it doesn't make any sense that the Messiah would be betrayed. And even if the Messiah was betrayed, how could this stop Jesus? Right? They've seen Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead. Right? They, they've heard Jesus speak words of life. They, they've, they've seen him heal the blind. They've seen him calm storms. How could a person betraying him possibly hinder God's chosen one? So their confusion, it makes sense. And I'm sure they're wondering, well, who, who is it? Peter wants to know that. Who is it? Who, who's going to betray Jesus? Certainly not one of the 12. Maybe, maybe it's someone on the outside. I think Jesus is, is showing us, or John is showing us Jesus' sovereign hand here as he puts, uh, he turns up the heat, I guess, for Judas. As he, he shows him, hey, I'm going to reveal who this is. And Judas is faced with a choice, In that moment, does he, does he move forward with the plan to betray, or will he admit what he's done, confess, and plead with Jesus to forgive him? Verse 23, one of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at the Uh, at the table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? The disciples are stunned. Like I said, Peter, who's always ready to talk, always ready to share what's on his mind, even he's unwilling to verbalize this question. So he motions over to a disciple that's sitting next to Jesus. He's like, He's nudging him. He wants him to ask, because Peter won't ask it. So he motions this over to the disciple whom Jesus loved, which we've got to talk for a second. Like, what a nickname, right? The disciple whom Jesus loved. Um, who is this? There's There are different options. You can Google it if you really want to get into it. But most scholars agree that the disciple whom Jesus loved is John, the author of this gospel, which makes it seem even a little funnier to give yourself that nickname right Um, it could come off as arrogant um, to call yourself the disciple whom jesus loved to me it seems on the surface it seems like such a male thing to do just a guy thing to get over on his buddies like my buddies in college we would have loved doing this right you can imagine an apostle labeling himself for all of eternity in god's word as the disciple whom jesus loved like getting. Getting over on the other apostles, a little holy apostle trash talk. Well, that's funny. I don't. I don't totally think that's what's going on. Maybe a sliver, um, but I, I don't think that's what's happening. I think this name actually reflects how incredible it was to be loved by Jesus. I think that. I think that John. Well, I'm confident that John, after Jesus died and resurrected and ascended, that there were times when, when he was just blown away that Jesus loved him. Right? I'm sure he thought back to different moments and, and when they were walking along the road or, or joking or eating this meal even, he just thought, I can't believe I was with God. I can't believe that, that I was with the Lord. That, that Jesus himself, he didn't just die for me to save me from my sin, but he loved me. I had a relationship with Jesus. I'm confident that John was dumbfounded that the Lord would love him so. That God's grace would be so intimate that Jesus himself would, would know him and love him personally. If that's the case, then the nickname carries, as, as one author put it, a sense of indebtedness to grace. So much so that the name and the identity of the person really doesn't matter, that the focus is all on Jesus. Right? This, this nickname it's not for him to poke at his buddies. This nickname is to make sure that everyone sees Jesus, how awesome he is, how incredible his love is. Like John the Baptist, John the Baptist said, he must become greater, I must become less. Whoever the disciple whom Jesus loved is, he wanted to make sure the spotlight was on Jesus as he deserves it. So my guess is it's John. So John, he, he leans back, right, the, the table, there's no chairs, it's low to the ground, they lean on the table with their left arm, they can eat with their right, so they're kind of at an angle, coming off the table, he's next to Jesus, Peter motions to him, John leans back, literally into his chest, and he says, Lord, who is it? And this is what Jesus says in verse 26. Jesus answered, it is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he'd taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, what you're going to do, do quickly. He gives it to Judas. And we don't even have time to really get into this. But even that is an act of love, that Jesus would give this to him. But there's also judgment in it too. Judas didn't know that the bread would come to represent Christ's body broken for sinners. He didn't realize that when he took that bread in, he was really eating judgment onto himself because he was not choosing to trust in Jesus. He was choosing to be judged for his sin. Jesus says to him, what you're going to do, do it quickly. Don't waste any time. And again, I think this is John giving us insight into Jesus' sovereign, strategic maneuvering of his timeline. He and the Father knew when he needed to be crucified, and they were going to make sure that Judas moved at their pace. Verse 28, Now no one at the table knew why he had said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, Buy what you need for the feast, or that he should give, him, or, or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. It's strange, as we read this, that the disciples are confused. Jesus clearly said, the one who I give the morsel to, the one who I dip this and I give it to him, that's the betrayer. And then he does it, and they're confused about what he said. Why he said, buy what you need for the feast, or why he said, go do what you're going to do quickly. And they come up with these bizarre theories. Maybe he's saying, buy something for the feast, or, or give something to the poor. What's possible is that only John heard it. I don't know for sure. I didn't come up with that idea. I read it somewhere, and I'm like, that makes a lot of sense. Whether John heard it or everybody heard it, I don't know. They're confused. But John, we know, heard it. And I guarantee John is stunned at this point. He was already confused that there was someone that would betray Jesus. But now he finds out that it's one of the 12, a man that he's been walking with for the last three years. A man that he, they'd heard Jesus teach together. They'd seen, they'd seen Jesus do amazing miracles. I'm sure that, that John and Judas, at some point, maybe many points, had conversations together, trying to figure out who this Jesus was, asking, like, could he really be the Messiah? And now he finds out that this guy is going to betray Jesus. And my guess is that, that there were things in, in Judas' behavior that suddenly made sense. Right? Weird things that John didn't know what to do with, and now he's like, oh, that's why he did it. That punk can't believe that he's going to betray Jesus. Well, Judas leaves at night, which I'm confident John gives us that detail, not to tell us the time of day, but but he's bringing back in the, the light and darkness that we've seen throughout this book, starting in chapter one, that Jesus, the light of the world, has come into the world, that darkness will not overcome it. But Judas, he's given himself over to darkness the darkness of unbelief. He's been swallowed up in that darkness rather than choosing the light of Jesus. So the mood feels bleak here, but then Jesus, as as he so often does, says something shocking in verse 31. When he had gone out, Jesus said, now is the son of man glorified and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Judas leaves to betray Jesus, and that signals Jesus that glory time is now, that he will now be glorified, that glorification is happening. It's so bizarre that Jesus is glorified through betrayal, that Jesus would submit to this betrayal, that he gave himself over. We believe in a Savior that defeated death by dying, That that sentence doesn't even make sense, apart from God opening our eyes to see what that means. If someone were to interview Jesus before the cross and say, So Jesus, I heard you're you're going to defeat death, you're going to defeat sin. How exactly are you going to overcome this darkness? He'd respond something like, I'm going to submit myself to death. I'm going to die a shameful death on a cross in the place of sinners. When you hear that plan, it doesn't seem like it should work. Only God could pull something like that off. Jesus uses for himself in that verse the title Son of Man, and we've talked about that several times. The title Son of Man in the Old Testament is associated with glory. In the other Gospels, it's associated with suffering. John Stott wrote that in John's Gospel, he brings the two dramatically together, that glory and suffering go hand in hand. Somehow God made it that the Father and the Son are glorified through a shameful death on the cross. God's splendor is displayed in the perfect obedience of Jesus' sacrifice. That could only work because that's how God made it. There's no other explanation. There's no other way the cross could be glorious. I remember talking with a friend in high school. One of my best friends. He's a Mormon. Um, we were talking about the cross. We talked about we talked about Christianity, Mormonism, the Bible, what we believe differently. All the time, like I, I just wanted my friend to to come and, and know Jesus to trust in him as his Lord, um, anyway, one day he was asking me, like why are Christians so obsessed with the cross like there's crosses in your churches like i've seen Christians wear crosses there 's crosses at people 's houses. like what is up with that? and it had just never occurred to me that that Mormons weren't right like I knew that they believed that Jesus died on the cross, so he explained to me he, he said if Jesus had died in an electric chair, I wouldn't wear a necklace with an electric chair around it. Right? That was absolute foolishness to him. It made no sense at all. Paul tells us the cross is foolishness to the world. It makes no sense apart from the Holy Spirit opening our eyes so that we can see that indeed the cross is glorious. John and Jesus clearly viewed the cross and the resurrection as a time when Jesus and the Father through Jesus were were most glorified. So the betrayal set in motion and Jesus says, now is the time, now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. Jesus then goes on he speaks words that seem incredibly important to John. In particular, verses 34 and 35 that we'll get into in a moment here, it looks like that's why he wrote 1 John. Like 1 John weaves in and out of verses 34 and 35 here. Even in verse 33, Jesus opens it up with little children. And John, he, he steals that same language in his letters. John didn't know it at the time, but this night and what Jesus was about to say, this would be one of the most powerful nights of his life. His words were going to shape his ministry as an apostle. Verse 33, he says, Little children, yet a little while I'm with you, You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I'm going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this all people know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Love one another, this is a simple commandment, simple enough that a kid can memorize it and understand what it means. And yet difficult enough that mature, lifelong Christians struggle to obey this commandment. It's embarrassing how much I struggle to love brothers and sisters in Christ. We're so self-focused. We're so easily distracted. We try to do things on our own power rather than through the power of the Holy Spirit. So we struggle to love like Jesus has loved. Jesus says this is a new commandment. Certainly this isn't new. We can think back to times in the Old Testament where we're commanded to, to love one another, to love specifically our brothers and sisters. Jesus himself, he quotes from the Old Testament when he's asked, What's the greatest commandment? He says, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. He says, The second's like it, love your neighbor as yourself. He, he gets that from Deuteronomy 6 5. It's that from Leviticus 1918, which says, "You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord your God." So loving God, loving people, this, this, isn't, this isn't new. So what does Jesus mean when he says it's new? Well, here are two ways. God had never come into the world to lay down his life for his people before. That had not happened yet in history. So Jesus comes in, he does that, that is new. And what's also new is is the standard of our love. Jesus is the standard of how we're to love one another. That's our objective as Christians, to love one another as Jesus has loved. And that's lofty because he loved perfectly. We just read last week about Jesus humbly serving them, washing their feet, taking on the the lowly position of a servant. He's about to lay down his life for them. So we're commanded to love one another just as Jesus has loved. And it'd be easy to try and imitate Jesus' love and yet not love as Jesus has loved. Right? We can try really hard and do things that, that are, look like love but not love as Jesus has loved. In John 15 that we'll get to in a couple weeks, Jesus says to them, apart from me, you can do nothing. You can't wash feet like me apart from me. And the disciples are about to see what it's like to try and follow Jesus under their own power. Right? They will scatter when he's arrested. Peter will deny him three times. We, we can't love as Jesus has loved without abiding in him. and This is one of the things you pick up in 1 John. Too many places to take you, but I'm, I'm going to read two verses in chapter 4 of 1 John. This is verse 9. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. Right? We're to live through Jesus. First John four twelve. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and His love is perfected in us. We can't do anything apart from the vine. There are all kinds of of, of knockoff imitation loving things that this world tries to sell us as the real deal, and yet none of them, none of them compare to the love of Jesus. So if we wanna love a Jesus as Jesus has loved, he has to be our source for loving anyone. A couple observations for how Jesus loved. The the first is he loved with total humility. I, I know we've talked about this, but it's worth talking about over and over again. Jesus took the lowliest position When when he washed their feet He took the lowliest position when he became a human when he took on flesh and lived among us He died the death of a criminal so when we humble ourselves We reflect and point to our Savior who laid down his life laid down his majesty for us No task should be too low no job too low in fact the lower the better The second thing, the second observation, is we should care about the spiritual health of our brothers and sisters, like Jesus did. We're supposed to be a great encouragement to other Christians. God has designed us to need one another. He's made it so that we're to build each other up, that we would consider how to spur one another on to love and good works. So part of me following Jesus is investing into brothers and sisters in Christ so that they can continue to believe, so they can continue to grow in their belief. In in a very practical sense, we are our brother's keeper. Cain got it wrong. We're responsible for one another. We're responsible for one another to continue in Christ. These chapters just before the arrest, Jesus, he's pouring into them. He's pouring into the disciples, and John gives us this eyewitness account of his great care for them, that they would continue to believe, that they would grow in that belief. And Jesus is giving them what they need so that that can happen, not just just the next few days, but the rest of their lives. Jesus can see what's ahead for them, and he's serving them by preparing them. So if you're a Christian, how concerned are you for your brother and sister's faith in Christ? Are you looking for ways to strengthen other Christians in their walk with Jesus? Does your relationship with other Christians for the most part remain on the surface, or do you actually know what's happening in their lives? Do you regularly pray for brothers and sisters in Christ? If today you were talking to someone after church here, and you realize there's some big stuff going on, Would you be willing to ask them right then and there, can I pray for you right now? Or would that be too awkward? More mature believers, are you looking for younger believers that you can pour into, that you can help serve? We need to be concerned with our brothers' and sisters' faith. We need to be concerned that they continue in Jesus and grow in Jesus. The third, the last, is that it's all about glorifying God. Our, our serving testifies to who God is. It reminds us and others how good God is, how loving God is. When I love another believer, not only am I meeting their needs, but I'm pointing them to the love of God for them. We've had multiple people in our body that have been through just hard, hard things since, since I've been here. Um, and, and it's been great to watch Harvest people respond, r- respond to whatever the tragedy is. I can think of times when we've had a family go through something really hard and person after person came to bring meals to this family. There were people that did yard work for this family, helped fix stuff around the house that was broken down for this family. And what Jesus did with that offering was show the neighbors in that neighborhood something different, something that they weren't used to. They saw how good Jesus is. Jesus made neighbors who don't believe in Jesus pause for a moment. And consider what's going on here. God is greatly glorified by the way we serve and love one another. Jesus tells them, your love for one another will identify you as my disciples. Right? Up to this point, Jesus has been physically with them. People knew they were his disciples because they were physically with him. Jesus was going to go away and he says, this is how you'll be identified. That, that you love one another as I have loved you. How great would it be if our testimony to the world was that we loved like Jesus? When we fight, when we're petty, when we refuse to forgive, when we avoid each other, when we gossip, backstab, when we ignore each other, when we make excuses for why we can't help, we steal glory from Christ. We don't look like he says his disciples will look. Verse 36, Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Peter's no longer speechless. I don't know that he completely missed what Jesus commanded in in loving his brothers. But he wasn't concerned with that right now. Right now, he's concerned that Jesus is leaving. So rather than obeying Jesus, he wants to know what's going on. He wants to understand what his Lord is up to instead of doing what he says. I'm so glad we don't struggle with that. Jesus plainly tells him, where I'm going you can't follow, but afterwards you will. Peter wants to go where Jesus is going. And it's easy to say that sitting in a safe room after a great meal with all your friends. It's going to prove much harder when Jesus is taken away in the garden by a bloodthirsty mob. Peter thinks he will remain faithful, and, and to some degree he, he gets that death must be coming for Jesus. He, he says, I will lay down my life for you. And obviously there's irony here. Peter's not about to lay down his life. Jesus tells Peter the exact opposite's gonna happen. Verse 38, Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you've denied me three times. This passage begins with the betrayal Of Judas, and it ends with Jesus' prediction that Peter will not be able to follow Jesus, but he'll deny Jesus. Peter didn't account for human weakness. He was convinced that he wouldn't falter. He thought that what he had within him on his own was enough to keep him faithful to Jesus. In the face of betrayal by one disciple who's faking devotion and 11 others that are unable to remain faithful to Jesus, Jesus remained faithful. He still loved them. And because of Jesus' faithfulness, we know that Peter's going to be reinstated and that he'll follow Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit. Peter's life will end a few decades later by laying it down for Jesus. The proof that that God loves us is that he sent Jesus to us. Jesus proves his love for us by giving his life so that we could live in him. The proof that we are his that our hearts have been transformed by the Holy Spirit is that we love like Jesus has loved. Your love for one another is really, really important. It's proof that you belong to Jesus. It's a testimony to this world that God is love, that he's changed your heart, that you've been born again by the work of the Holy Spirit. It is by grace you've been saved through faith, not of works, lest no man should boast. Let's pray. Jesus, we, we thank you for your love, Lord, that you would come as a man, that you'd die for our sins, so that if we would trust in you, we could be forgiven. Jesus, it's hard for us to comprehend why you would do that, Lord, that you could be that loving that you would give yourself up for us, that you would be our substitute, that you would take our place. Jesus, would you help us as harvest to love each other really well, Lord? Holy Spirit, would you unify this body, not so that we can have a good time together, but so that you can be glorified? Jesus, would we deeply care for our brothers and sisters in Christ? Would we be ready to have conversations? about sin, Lord. Would we willingly confront one another, Jesus? Would we be so eager to forgive God? Or would we love like you've loved, but we can't do any of that without you? The Holy Spirit, we're so thankful. We're so thankful that when Jesus left, he sent you, that we're not on our own, that we have you empowering us. Spirit, will you help us to walk with you, Lord? It's in your name we pray. Amen.